Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 4, chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. Amen, and welcome once more. Happy New Year 2019. Excited to start the year off with you today, and not only with you, but with a whole lot of other people as well. You may know our church is part of a larger spiritual family called Every Nation. It's got churches and campus ministries around the world, and so to start the year off, we're doing a couple things in conjunction with all those people uh, globally. First of all, we're doing our, our fast this week, Monday through Friday, and secondly, we're also doing this short series called Great Faith this week, and and next week is sort of bookends around our fast. And here's why I'm so excited to do this and do, to do this series. I'm excited to do this not only to participate in something that's larger than ourselves, and that's certainly important, but also to hopefully regain some ground in a crucial area of your life and of the life of the church of Jesus in general. And that ground has something to do, has everything to do with the idea of, with the, the topic of, with the doctrine of faith, of faith faith because the whole idea of, the whole topic of, the whole doctrine of faith has nothing to do with getting that parking space up front at Target, though you might pray for it. Unless you're a, certainly a mother of small children, in which case it's crucial and God prepare, has prepared a place for you, right? Uh, but it's got nothing to do with that guy or that person on TV asking you for money for his luxury jet. It's got nothing to do with you even getting more and more stuff, but as we're going to see this week and next, great faith has everything to do with Jesus, with Jesus, and here's what it has to do with Jesus. The only times that the the New Testament writers, those who either were eyewitnesses of Jesus or who interviewed the eyewitnesses of those who knew Jesus, anytime they, the only times they ever record that Jesus was ever amazed at a human being. The only time those writers ever record him being blown away, the Greek word is thumazo. The only time Jesus was ever thumazo, that he, that he marveled or was stunned, was in direct connection with someone's great faith or lack of it. In other words, having great faith has everything to do with Jesus. It matters to Jesus. And if it matters so much to Jesus, and it does, it ought not only to matter to us today as well, It ought to also make its way down into how we live our lives every day. And that's what we're going to look at starting right now. Imagine if you were to meet an athlete who said something along these lines. Imagine if you met an athlete who said, I can beat 
anyone, every time. Imagine if you met a baseball player who said, I can hit any pitch, any pitcher throws me over the fence any game every time. Imagine if you met a football player who said, I can score a touchdown every time I get the ball. Imagine if you met a basketball player who said, I can score on any place on the court, every shot, every time. Imagine if you met a musician who said, I can write a number one hit every time I pick up my pen. Now, if you heard that, what would you, what would you probably think? You would probably think one of three things. Number one, you, you would probably think that person is just crazy. They're crazy. They're nuts. They're out of touch with reality. Or number two, you might not think they were crazy. You might just think they were prideful. Uh, they, that they, they may be good, but they're not that good. They're just full of themselves. Or number three, you might say, all right, all right, pal. All right, friend. You open your mouth. Now let's see something. Right? You said something. Now show me something. Uh, you, you think you're that good? Let's see you prove it. Now listen, I want you to know, if you haven't before... That that's exactly the kind of claim that someone named Paul said he could do. Paul was this early Christian who wrote much of what we now call the New Testament. And right here, what you heard read you today, in this letter that Paul wrote to this group of first century Christians in the Roman colony of, of Philippi, Paul makes this astounding claim, as great or greater a claim as any athlete has ever made. Now, this guy, you may know him, he said he was the greatest. And last week, this guy said he was the greatest, if you've watched the sports news. All right, we're not here to start a, a you know, turf war here, but those are, those are great claims. But Paul's great claim was totally different. His claim was different because Paul would never, he never actually claimed he was the greatest at anything. As a matter of fact, he took pains to consistently say he was the least or the worst or the last. And so what Paul is doing here, though, is making a claim so great, it ought to stop you in your tracks. It ought to get your attention. No matter if you're you're here, you're, you're a Christian trying to follow Jesus a little better, or if you're not a Christian and you're sort of just eavesdropping in on what's happening here today, Paul's claim for all of us here, it ought to make us sit up and take notice, and here it is. Paul claims this. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's amazing. He says, I can do everything I'm supposed to do. Paul says, for all time, for all people, you today to see. He says he can do every single thing God is asking him to do. That's astonishing. I think. But I want to take it just a step further today and press you a bit because I think for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are claiming to follow Jesus, want to follow Jesus, if you believe that the same power that raised Jesus from a dead is alive in you, and you should believe that. If you believe the same Holy Spirit that lived in Paul lives in you, and you should. If you believe that these documents that we now call the New Testament are God's inspired word for you, and you should, then let me tell you, you should make the same claim yourself. You should make the same claim yourself. If you really believe that Jesus is who he says he was, that there's, just, there's been this kind of life-transforming power that's made its way somehow from heaven into you, then you ought to get up every day and make the same claim yourself. You say, man, Morgan, that sounds like a lot. Well, you know, can you give me some help here? How, how, how at least tell me how Paul did it. So yeah, let's ask. How did Paul 
do this? Hmm? How could he claim this? How could he have such great faith that he was able to say he could do every single thing God asked of him? Well, thankfully, he shows us how. He gives us three practices and a secret. He shows us the three practices of great faith and the secret that fuels them all. We're going to look at them in turn. Here we go. Number one, the first practice. There's many more, but we only have time for three. The first practice of a life of great faith is this. Here we go. Private discipline. Thank you, Brett, for saying amen. Now, if you heard this and you checked out because you said, I did not sign up for the military. You know, I was a part of this weird group like 10 years ago. I got out of that kind of thing. Don't check out. Give me just some space and time to show you what I mean. Look at what Paul writes in verse 6. He says, do not be anxious. The Greek word means scattered about anything. But in everything, would you say everything? Everything. everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known over and over again to God. And the peace of God, here comes the promise, which surpasses all understanding. You won't even get how it works sometimes. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here about prayer is just the same thing Jesus taught in the Gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount, over and over again about things called spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, things like fasting, things like giving. He says you do them over and over and over again. Why? Let me try to show you. One afternoon, uh, late last summer, I went out on the lake here, Lake Austin, on a jet ski. And Carrie and I had some missionary friends in town, and they invited us to go hang out with them there. And right there, by the way, if you, if you know anything about me, you should know. You should never invite me out on your jet ski. I've had a, a, a acquired a reputation over the years. I've had a, a, more than one accident on them. And about 20 years ago, I nearly killed a friend of mine. That's a true story. Thankfully, he was just significantly bruised. Uh, I wrecked a couple of jet skis and I've never lived it down because this happened all at a big ministry function with lots and lots of people there. And so again, my friend was okay, but this story has lingered and it's passed into myth and now legend. And my missionary friend I was with had heard this story as well, though he was not there. He managed to tell the owner of the jet skis we were going out on about that story before I ever showed up that day. And so I showed up and the owner comes up and he says, hey, are you sure I should let you out on these? I've heard you've got quite the reputation. Now, internally, I eye rolled. I said, uh, I said, oh, I'm fine. I've learned my lesson. Famous last words, of course. And after several hours then of taking my children out safely and returning them safely, nothing happening. Thank you. I went out one last time with one of my sons on the back. Now, normally, I, I looked every time I would make a turn. Uh, but this time, this last time, I forgot because I was tired. And I took uh, this too fast turn, way too fast. And as I took the turn, I looked now and coming head on at us was this giant speedboat. Yeah. Now a better driver would have made a, sure, a better turn, but I was nervous and I yanked the wheel and I threw off my son who, as he, he came off, dragged me down and I just cracked my elbow on the jet ski on the way off. Now, according to my friend who was watching this, of course, from the dock, he says, we skipped like pebbles for about, about 30 yards. And as I lay there floating in pain, I heard my son grunt from, a, I don't know where, he said, Dad. I said, yes. He said, Dad, 
That was epic. (laughs) So he was fine, thankfully, but my elbow felt like it had blown up. You said, well, did you tell your friend? Well, of course not. There's no way I was going to tell him about yet another jet ski accident I was on. And so I sucked it up in silence for the rest of the afternoon, cradled my elbow in ignominy, you know, and in shame like any other real man would. Thank you very much. I did tell Carrie later, and she, of course, knowing my history, looked at me and said, I'm just glad it was you and not our son. So after a week of seeing if it was okay, it was not okay, and I finally went to the doctor, and the first place I went said I had, a, I had broken a bone and that I needed surgery. Now at that point, I did two things. Number one, I got an MRI and waited for the results, and number two, I began to fast and pray with the church because it was our beginning of our fall fast this past year. And so while I fasted, I asked the Lord this question. It's the same question each of us ask God whenever we suffer or we go some, through something traumatic. We ask him, why? Why? And he said this. He said this back to me. Here's what I heard. So I was thinking about making a certain decision for the church and going a certain direction. He says, son, you are thinking about making a certain decision. And I want you to know that just like on that jet ski, you are fatigued, you are going too fast, and if you make this turn now, you're going to throw off your family and injure yourself in the process. He says, I am guarding you from yourself. Now, by the way, if you're a Christian and that sounds, uh, that sounds strange, you're not a Christian, that sounds really strange to you, that God would speak to people like that. Let me just tell you, while it may sound strange, it's not illogical for Christians because what's the Bible if not the record over thousands of years of God speaking to people personally? Abraham, Noah, Moses, Jesus, disciples, prophets. God is a personal God. He longs to speak to you personally. Now, it may be strange, but it's not illogical. But when I heard that, I sort of went, okay, Okay, thank you, Lord. But did I have to really learn that lesson like that? Am I so hard of hearing God? You know, (laughs) oh my gosh, you know, couldn't you just told me then? And spared me all the pain. God, I'm like this Old Testament prophet with an elbow for an object lesson, you know. And I got the results and I went for another opinion where the doctor told me, he says, there's nothing broken after all. But if you do have a torn ligament in your elbow, it's going to be painful. But if you will continue to stretch yourself over and over, even though it's painful, you're going to be fine. So I came to the prayer meeting that that night we had in the fast, encouraged by the news, but still not able to really move my arm. And as we sang the song, when you walk into the room, something happened. Now the lyrics go something like this. When you walk into the room, everything changes. Sickness starts to vanish. Every broken, hopeless situation ceases to exist. As we sang that, there was like this roar, this wave that began in the back of the room. If you were there, you remember it. It washed over the congregation. And all of a sudden, I felt my arm go from here to here, straight nearly all the way out, cracking and popping. God's power was touching me. Now, I tell you that, Not so you can come up afterward today and tell me about your special painkiller, about your essential oil, God, 
vitamin you've got, doctor you know, WebMD article you've read, right? Doctor, you know, thank you for caring about me, though. I appreciate it. All that stuff's great. But I tell you that, secondly, not, not to say the same thing I think will happen to you. I'm not saying that. But I tell you that, I hope, to illustrate what Paul is getting at here, that when you pray, when you fast, when you practice spiritual disciplines, even beyond your imagination, beyond your understanding, he says the God of peace will come in and guard it. It's a military term. He says, God will come in and somehow make your faith bulletproof. See, when I prayed, when I fasted, God intervened, made it clear. But it wasn't until I practiced those private disciplines that the God of peace came. You say, well, couldn't it have happened otherwise? I don't know. That's not the point of the story. The point is, Paul is saying, you can count on God to guard your heart if you'll exercise spiritual disciplines. Let me summarize it like this. We pray to keep ourselves from trusting in ourselves. We fast to keep ourselves from loving ourselves too much. And some of you may have loved yourself a little too much over the holidays. This week's your chance, you know. We give to keep ourselves from overspending on ourselves. See, we don't trust in those things, but we do trust God through those things because all those things do is just open the door for God to come into that room in your life, that room in your heart. All those things do is just to give God some space in the conversation. We don't trust God in those things, but we do trust him through those things. And no, they're not fun. Day five this week, if you fast, you're not going to be having fun. No discipline's fun when you start. On my own, yeah, like you, I would rather watch TV than pray. I'd rather throw down some tacos again than fast. I'd rather have another one of those or two more of those, thank you, than give. Oh, but disciplines, they set a guard. They keep my heart and my mind at peace. And if there's one thing I've learned, let me tell you, it's that TV, tacos, and money will not bring you peace in life. They won't. They may bring you a nice date night every once in a while, you know. But TV, tacos, and money, they won't bring you peace when your life is going down the tube, when your child has gone off the rails, when you get that diagnosis, when you're sick, when the world seems to fall apart. They won't bring you peace. See, we need to practice private disciplines to have great faith. It just creates space for God to work in our lives. Second, number two, I'll be a bit briefer with the other two. The second practice of a life of great faith is this, we'll put it like this, personal ministry. So private discipline and personal ministry. In other words, if you want to have great faith as you're about to see, Paul says you're going to have to do something extraordinary, way beyond maybe even your own comfort zone. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, past tense, but you had no opportunity. Now, if you know the context of this, you know, Paul is talking about a significant financial offering that the church in Philippi had taken up for him. He's writing them a letter of thank you, but look at how he frames what they did. He says, listen, all right, You were a people who cared. You were Christians who who wanted to do something great. You had it in your heart to do something, but he says you didn't have something else. He says you had no opportunity. And he goes on to say that offering that you gave into was your opportunity to literally put your money where you said your mouth was. You had it in your heart to care. You said you cared, but then you showed you cared. You did something personally when your desire walked through the door of opportunity. 
and change your life. Now hear me, if there's one thing that I hope for you this year, not as a preacher person, but as a pastor person, if there's one thing I hope for you this year, it's this. I hope that you wouldn't be, just be, concerned about something. But I hope that you would walk through some door of opportunity and you would take maybe even the largest risk of great faith for your life in Jesus, for Jesus. Because, because the whole goal of being a Christian is to allow the great faith God puts in us to prompt us towards great actions. And so that we, as it's been said, William Carey, not only just expect great things from God, but that we attempt great things for God. And so I want you to experience the absolute joy. Here's the word, the absolute rush of what it feels like to get in way over your head, to get into something way beyond yourself. So something God-sized, God-oriented, that you don't even know how it's going to work out in the end. That it might just take God moving in a miraculous way to come through for you. Because, hear this, going deep in God. Going deep in God is not just learning more. Going deep in God is not just having more information or getting more great sermons. I hope they're great. I know you do too. That's not depth. That's just being a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. And if the history of the Christian church has proved anything, it's that people can hear a lot, only do a little, and trick themselves, as James says, into thinking they're deep when they're really only full. They're not deep in God. They're just full of information. And when, when a person is only full of information, They're really only full of themselves. Paul says this, knowledge only puffs up. Knowledge only puffs up, but love builds up. Deep isn't uh, more sermons. Deep isn't more information. Deep in God is that thing. When you're over your head in faith for him, when you're risking so much for Jesus that it scares you whether or not you know it's going to work out or not, that is great faith. So this year, this year, go on that missions trip. You hear Brett get up here, somebody get up here, don't even think about it. Just plug your ears and push go, right? Uh, Lead that community group. Uh, Give that financial gift. Mentor that kid. Start that new business. Make that big transition. You know, write that book. Get that degree. Have that neighbor over for dinner. Open up your life. And do ministry personally. And when some voice in your head or somebody comes to tell you that thing doesn't matter, it's all for nothing, you shouldn't even start, guess what you'll have this time? Now you'll have a story. Now you'll have something to put right in the face of that voice. Listen, every time a person is water baptized in this church, you know what I do? You say, I have no idea, Morgan, what you do. You've never told us this before. All right, here, here it comes. I do two things. Number one, I may or may not personally insult the devil. Take that. Take that. And secondly, I always think, what would have happened if Carrie and I would have not come back here, not gotten in over our heads with a whole bunch of other people and not come back here to pastor with this, that happened? I don't know, but it did because lots of people got in over their heads. See, doing personal ministry, going deep like that in God, silences the voice and produces great faith. Final practice of a life of great faith today. We'll put it like this. Sorry for this one, though. Painful circumstances. You say, I'd like to practice that one the least. You know, please and thank you. I understand. Paul understands. Look what he writes. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
A few years ago, I was in the city of Manila. It's in the Philippines. You should go sometime. I was visiting a friend's church, getting ready to speak at this, this conference, and uh, student conference there. And I came over there, and I was prepared for lots of it. I was prepared for the heat in Manila, which in the summer is extensive. I was prepared for the time change. I was prepared for drinking bottled water only. Thank you as an American. I was even prepared for the balut. The local delicacy. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up later. Have fun with that. But what I was not prepared for was the traffic and the driving conditions. Because both in the U.S. and the Philippines, we both have traffic lanes and traffic lines. But only one of us actually uses them. In the Philippines, at least in Manila, the roads and highways are really only these massive funnels for vehicles to do this kind of highly fluid, unregulated, high-speed dance around each other. Anytime I was in a car, I was inches away from the one next to me from a motorcycle with four people on the back or a jeepney, if you know what that one is, with folks coming out the back. Braking is optional. Swerving is recommended. And red lights are for cowards. I lost count, seriously, of the times I thought that Jesus and I were going to finally meet face to face (laughs) until about the third day there when I realized two things. First of all, I haven't seen a single accident. They all know what they're doing. There's not one accident. And the second thing I realized was this. Not only were there no accidents, I was the only nervous person on the road. I was the only one sweating it. And to make it worse, anytime I was in the car with a, a Filipino friend, not only were they not nervous... They were smiling and relaxed the whole time. Further proof that Filipinos are amazing people, and they are. So what was the difference? Here's the word. Expectations. Expectations. They expected the swerving, the braking, the honking, the lurching, conflict on the road. They all expected all of it. My friends were calm. I was a wreck. They were poised. I had no peace. The difference? Expectations. Here's the thing. When it comes to the circumstances that will define your life, maybe even define this year, when it comes to those moments that will either leave you better or maybe leave you worse, almost all of them will have to do with how you handle the life equivalent of traffic in Manila. Will you be like my Filipino friends there, expect something and remain calm, or will you freak out like this American? Now think about what Paul is saying now, where he's writing this from. He's writing in chains. He's writing from prison. He's suffering tremendously for the gospel. And in the middle of all of it, he's saying he can handle all of it. He's like my friends in the car there. Traffic? Fine. No traffic? Fine. I can handle it all. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He calls these things he's been through low moments. I mean, come on, that's like saying that cancer is just an inconvenience. Because elsewhere, he tells you what those low moments were. He says, I was beaten, low moment, tortured, low moment. I was nearly starved to death. I nearly drowned in a shipwreck. I've been severely clinically depressed. But he summarizes all of what's happened to him a few verses earlier in the same letter to the Philippians. And he writes this about it all. He says, I want you to know that what's happened to me, look at this, has really served to advance the gospel that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, not for me, it's for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is saying here, you've got to catch this. My most 
painful circumstances have really turned out to be my most pivotal circumstances. What seemed painful, now in hindsight, was a pivotal moment. It changed my life and the lives of the people around me. Let me ask you, do you believe this? about your life this coming year, that maybe, maybe, just maybe, by God's grace, that your most painful circumstances, which, yes, are the hardest ones to endure, the most difficult ones to bear, might just, because we've got a God who can rewrite history and rewrite time and space, what was meant for evil can become good, that those things just might turn out to be the pivot point in your life, to change your life, change your family, change a generation, change the city, bring God glory. Let me tell you, every single person I have ever known for Jesus who's been great, a great parent, a great spouse, a great church leader, a great business person has, can, has and can point to painful, painful, deeply painful circumstances that turn out to be pivotal ones in hindsight and later. And I'll bet many of you can point to the same thing in your life. Private disciplines, personal ministry, painful circumstances. <laughs> At this point, you're probably saying, how can I do all this. How can I live all this out? And if you're asking that, you're thinking that, let me tell you, you are asking the right question. Because yeah, on one hand, to do all of this indefinitely on your own is impossible. You can't make it. That voice, whatever you hear is right. You shouldn't even start. You quit. And yet, Paul makes the claim, I could do it all. How? How can he make the claim? How can we? Well, in the end, Paul gives us not a practice but a principle. He gives us not just a checklist, but he gives us a secret. He says, I've got the secret to make it through anything, to stare down any job loss, any life transition, any bit of pain, imprisonment, failure, criticism. He says, I can win every time, beat every opponent. He says, I can do all things. You ready? He says, because I understand and believe the gospel. He said, well, that's not what he said, Morgan. He said, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. And yes, he did. But all that is, I hope you'll see, is just another way of reflecting back to you, re-articulating the core truth of the gospel message. Because think about what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say, I can do all things through Paul, who's really awesome. He doesn't say, I can do all things by myself. I'm good enough. I am strong enough and doggone of people like me. He's not saying he can silence the negative self-talk because he's so great and competent or successful. No, he's in prison. No, he's saying the only reason that Paul wins is because Paul is lost in the sense that Paul has given up on Paul as the master of Paul's fate and the captain of Paul's soul. Paul only wins because Paul is lost. Paul has strength because Paul realizes Paul is weak. Paul gets his strength from another source. And if you're saying, Morgan, that sounds like, you know, you're saying Christianity is just a crutch. To that I would say, Paul would say, you know, you haven't gone far enough. Jesus isn't just a crutch. He is your ambulance driver. He is the ER. He is your blood transfusion. He is your team of doctors and nurses and surgeons. Paul doesn't, hear me, silence the voice of the enemy with his own words and neither will you. He silenced the voice of the enemy the same way you and I can, by receiving, by getting strength from the same words that God the Father spoke to his son Jesus at the water, his water baptism. He said, here is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Oh, Paul believed that and he got that and you can have that. Here's how. Because Jesus got them and yet, yet on the cross, 
He lost them. He got the voice then in his baptism. But on the cross, it went away. And on the cross, Jesus became the ultimate loser. He was publicly shamed, publicly criticized, became a failure. They said, if you are the son of God, come down off the cross. Why? Oh, he was taking all our failures so that his victory could pass to us. And we can say like Paul, oh, now I can do all things. Here's how, through Christ who gives me strength. We get the victory, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. How? through our Lord Jesus Christ praise be to him the secret to winning is knowing you're not the winner the secret to strength is not getting it from you yours will fail and fall if you don't get this but when you understand the gospel that the way to live is to give up the old self so that God can do something even greater with the new self that's what he calls you new self now you can live a life of personal ministry private spiritual disciplines, you can endure even painful circumstances. How? Because you get that Jesus is your strength and you go to him over and over. And like Paul says, he says, when I'm weak, now I'm strong. It is, friend, it is the unbeatable move. It's the winning chess piece. It's the unstoppable play that can't be defeated. It's why Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I pray that would be your confession, our church's confession for you today, this year.